Star Trekkin' Across the Universe, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Andrew Fasekis joins us to talk about his new National Geographic book that uses Star Trek to introduce the wonders of astronomy. Wait till you see the images of Mars that senior editor Emily Lakdawalla has gotten from India's Mars Orbiter mission. Bill Nye wants NASA to make a date with the Red Planet, and we'll learn why you shouldn't mess with Bruce Betts in this week's edition of What's Up. Some gorgeous new images, Emily. Tell us about these uh, pictures of Mars. Well, these aren't exactly new images. They are newly released images, though. It's the first formal release of science quality data from the Mars Orbiter mission. That's uh, the Indian Space Agency's Mars Orbiter mission. And they've uh, finally done a public release of science data from all their instruments. Of course, the one instrument I'm most interested in always is the camera. And I spent a while downloading the 517 photos that they released, and they really are quite unusual and very pretty. And I know you spent days processing these, and boy, that work really shows off well here. What is so special about this camera? It's not high-rise. No, it's absolutely not high-rise. In fact, it's pretty much the opposite of high-rise. High-rise, of course, is the uh, camera on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that takes pictures so detailed that you could use them for hiking maps. Uh, <laughs> they use them to plan rover traverses. But each image only covers a tiny fraction of Mars. The Mars Color Camera, ISRO's Mars Orbiter mission, is basically the opposite. It's a very wide-angle camera. It's got a field of view that's designed so that when the orbiter is at its farthest reach from Mars, it is able to take in all of the planet in one view. It's also a color camera, like the ones on Curiosity. And so that means that it takes these basically magazine cover quality photos of the globe of Mars. It's not really going to lead to new science, but these are such valuable context images that allow you to point at a photo and say, this is the place I'm talking about. Now let's zoom in and go check out these other more detailed images. I'll tell you, Mars never looked better. And you've even got some images here that they captured of uh, the moons, uh, one of Phobos. Uh, passing over the planet. Yeah, there's a couple. There's one where you can actually see the shape of Phobos, and there's a couple more where you just see Phobos as a dot covering just the tiniest fraction of the full globe of Mars. It really gives you context for how small Phobos is compared to the planet. If I had to pick a favorite, it would be uh, the one of one of those Tharsis volcanoes with the clouds streaming away from it. And this looks like a close-up, but of course, it's nothing like a high-rise close-up. It, it's just beautiful. That one is really pretty. And, you know, it's it actually is really hard to find images of entire volcanoes in modern Mars data sets. You typically have to go back to uh, Viking. Sometimes you can get them from Mars Express, a high-resolution stereo camera. But this really is a valuable data set for saying, here is a volcano, here is a canyon, you know, here is a giant impact basin. Now let's zoom in and talk about the science that's going in in these places. So what is this sort of open letter that you've uh, written to the uh, Mars Orbiter team? Well, the global images that Mars Orbiter mission takes are, they're unique. They only took full globe views right at the beginning of the mission when the apoapsis of the orbit, the farthest reach, was able, they were able to view a fully lit Mars or a nearly fully lit Mars. 
now they've changed the orbit so that they see fully lit Mars when they're closest to Mars and they're shooting all their pictures there. If they shot a picture of Mars from Apoapsis, they'd see it as a crescent, which I think they've decided not to do because of what scientific value is a crescent image of Mars. Has little scientific value, but so much emotional value. I'm begging them to shoot those photos. They'd be published in books for decades to come. Well, I hope they're listening, but regardless, nice work, Emily, and uh, thanks very much for joining us again. Thank you, Matt. She's our senior editor, the Planetary Evangelist for the Planetary Society, and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Now let's stop in and talk with Bill, Bill Nye. Several things to talk about today, including a little bit of a tease for the new Space Policy Edition, because you had a concern that comes right out of the discussion in that show about NASA planning. Well, there's a couple news articles, and one of them just says NASA has no plans beyond the 2020 rover uh, with respect to Mars, the Martian landing of the 2020 rover. And that's been the problem. And that's and you could see why uh, the people in Guadalajara were so excited to hear Elon Musk present SpaceX's plan for going to Mars in 2025 or whatever it is. I don't know if you're of a certain age, Matt. Uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers <laughs> had a hit with uh, Set a Day, where the, he was asking his girlfriend to pick a day for them to uh, interact. Get, get hitched. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Let's go get hitched. And so without setting a day, there's no pressure to complete anything. And this is where it gets back to this thing. You know, they've done studies. Students are more productive when there's a deadline. Oh, yeah. When students don't have a deadline, their work isn't as good quality. I always say deadlines are magic. They're your friend. And so if the next administrator of NASA, uh, working with the next president of the United States, and with international partners, was able to negotiate with everybody to set a day to bring back samples from Mars or to land, pick a number, 10 tons on Mars, whatever, then things would be getting done rather, rather than having articles like the one that appeared this morning uh, about NASA having amorphous plans. Mm. But I think these things are all connected. It's a solvable problem. Absolutely. And this is at the core of uh, that new Space Policy Edition that we posted on Friday. Uh, I did with Casey Dreyer and Jason Callahan, the uh, the policy uh, wonks of the Planetary Society. Which they are can... wonks, man. They are. <laughs> I love them. They are into the details. And really, you guys, everybody listening... The details are really the hard part. I've said this many times, but Washington, D.C. is a small town based on relationships. And you have to get to know people. You have to find out what's reasonable, what's possible. And then you have to encourage people to see it your way. (laughs) And so we really want the world's largest space agency to set a day to land on Mars. 30 seconds left. What is this about dementia if you go to Mars? Oh, it's a study with rats. Yes, if rats are exposed to too much radiation, they show signs of dementia. That's wild. Uh, Now, I don't know how true it is, but it gets back, Matt, to big picture thinking when it comes to space, deep space travel. It would be great to have a way to protect astronauts entirely from radiation. Then this question wouldn't be as important. And it would be great to have a spacecraft that spins a little bit so you'd have a little bit of gravity. That would also uh, just make the ride more comfortable. Yeah, But it's an I, exciting time because people are asking these questions again for real. It's just one more thing. Are you telling me that being in space makes you forget <laughs> things? Could be. Let's, let's look into it. 
I hope that was a well-controlled experiment and that, you know, they make sure that these rats weren't, for instance, just following the U.S. presidential campaign. I get it. <laughs> Thank I you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you engaged listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We really are work at the Planetary Society. We really are working to change the world. Thank you all. And how? And he's leading us in that effort. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye, the science guy. Uh, let's talk about a cool new book that combines the real universe with the Star Trek universe. We're going to talk with Andrew Fasekas. Oh, to travel among the stars as easily as the Starship Enterprise. Fortunately for we Earthlings, anyone can cross the galaxy from their own backyard. You don't need warp drive, you don't even need a telescope, though even an inexpensive one reveals far more. What you do need is a guide. Andrew Fasekas has volunteered. His book, Star Trek, The Official Guide to Our Universe, is subtitled The True Science Behind the Starship Voyages. It was published a few weeks ago. That's also when I talked to Andrew via Skype at his home in Montreal. Canadians will recognize him as the Night Sky Guy, heard on CBC Radio Canada. Andrew also writes the Starstruck column at nationalgeographic.com. Andrew, welcome to Planetary Radio, and congratulations on the publication of this really beautiful book. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. It is uh, <laughs> intriguing. Now, I have to admit, the audience knows uh, that I am, um, if not a Trekkie, the next closest thing to it. I'm a big fan and have been since the original series, which I hear you're a fan of as well. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more uh, Trek. This is, well, you called it in your introduction a bit of a, a mind meld. What did you mean by that? <laughs> That's right, a Vulcan mind meld. I couldn't resist. <laughs> My passion for stargazing, the night sky, really goes back to my childhood, young childhood. Some of my earliest memories are not only of gazing at the night sky uh, with my dad. Uh, we spent so many hours on our rooftop of our apartment building. We lived in downtown Montreal, Canada, and uh, it's very light polluted, but we spent so much time looking through our telescope and then going out on camping trips and really seeing the night sky and it's all its glory. And then at the same time in my life, I had Star Trek there. Uh, front and center. And that was in the form of watching every week. It was, a, it was a ritual in my household to get together with my dad on Sundays. And this was probably, I guess this was in the mid-70s, and I would be probably five, seven years old, something like that. And every Sunday, it was the, what, probably one of the first reruns of the original Star Trek series in Canada. I would just sit there with my dad, and I would barrage him with tons of questions uh, on what we're watching. You know, I was a very inquisitive little guy and I guess a, a, a real uh, space geek in the making. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so I just asked him about every, all these amazing things that we were seeing on every episode. How was the spaceship getting to their destination so fast? What about those planets? How how could they be, be breathing the air? And what is what was that star that they passed by? What was that about? And I think I wore my dad down, and that's when he bought that telescope for us to <laughs> really start having our own cosmic adventures. I got my first uh, scope when I was 10 in a, a light and otherwise polluted Los Angeles and, uh, and loved it as much as you. We have something else in common. Like me, you've got a couple of daughters, 
how did you introduce them to both the night sky and uh, the wonders of Trek? Well, they've been really great because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I've been waiting for my great evil plan as they get older to, <laughs> to get them get them hooked on science. And it wasn't hard because uh, my background is as uh, as as a scientist too, um, uh, having you know, gone through um, university. My background is actually as a wildlife biologist. I, I worked on African antelope conservation in the Kalahari Desert. Wow. I spent much time in southern Africa in the desert under absolutely amazing skies, dark skies. So I have that science background and the love of all, all things science. And I wanted to instill that in my kids. My wife is an entomologist by training as well. So we just love nature in all its forms. And so we started at a very young age. And then Star Trek, of course, was also something that I love. But I had to wait, I think, a little bit until they got older. And with this, the, the book project really uh, propelled everything into warp speed, I guess, because with my kids <laughs> loving, at first they, were, they weren't sure. And they actually, I tried introducing them to the original series or the next generation. It didn't really take, they were at the time, four or five years old. But I, what's happened in the interim is with, with Star Trek being part of my life for the last two years so intensely and having to watch all those episodes, I had them get hooked on the animated series, believe it or not. Oh, yeah, That's, sure. Many people don't talk about it, and it's forgotten by, by many, but it's, it's, it's really amazing. And, and uh, my kids have, you know, that was came out in 1973, Many of the original main actors in the original series actually vo did the voices. And there's surprisingly great science also there. A lot of really good science fiction writers at the time. And some uh, great aliens that don't look like humans with appliances. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. They could go much farther, obviously, in the animated series, fleshing out some really neat aliens and, you know, the uh, the astronomical canvas that that all those adventures played out were really amazingly done, too. My kids just love that. They just finished all of them and they've moved. On. Now they've moved on to the original series and they really, really like it. They're they they're, I see them discussing things. They know it better than I do. Having gone to some Star Trek conventions now, I've been lucky enough to bring them with me and they are like in cloud nine. I mean, they love, they're eating it up. And of course, at the same time, I'm trying to instill them uh, some of that science as well, getting them out to the telescope and seeing some of the things uh, that, you know, I talk about in the book as well. Sounds like your fiendish plot is working. I can tell you my daughters are much older than yours, and it did pay off. <laughs> they are. They did? <laughs> oh, yes. They're big science fans and big uh, Star Trek fans as well. So uh, so hang in there. It's It, it really does pay off. Um, back to the book. It is pretty amazing visually. I mean, it it is rich in the sort of graphics illustrations that I guess you'd kind of expect from National Geographic, but uh, it really is why, in large part, it's a beautiful book, but it's also beautifully written. Oh, thank you. And, and you know, uh, I mean, it was a labor of love, really was for me, because it's something that, like I said, has been part of my life since I was a young kid. And then to actually be able to share this passion, you know, this excitement, and that's what I was hoping to convey with the book, is really get that excitement and get people to go out, get excited enough to go outside and look up at the night sky and make that connection with something between the fictional universe and the real universe. 
It says right on the cover, the official guide to our universe. What, what does that mean? Did you get approval by the United Federation of Planets? <laughs> as clo- close as I can. Well, better better than that, CBS, which... Oh, yeah. all, <laughs> much all, more powerful than the Federation. Much, exactly. Yeah, that was a really big deal. We knew right away that um, CBS, who, you know, that owns all the, all the rights to the Star Trek characters and episodes and Paramount pictures with the movies, we had to get them involved in the book to do it the right way, to do it justice. Uh, because we had to fill it up with as much Trek stuff as we could, you know, Trek content, just squeeze everything out. And I was really lucky because when we, when we got in touch with CBS, with through national, obviously National Geographic, CBS was really keen on getting involved. They said early on that this was a type of project that they've wanted to do for decades because Star Trek is so rich uh, with every incarnation of Star Trek in all those different series, there's, there's always more and more added uh, and more and more science, you know, and it's a reoccurring foundation that's very solid in Star Trek. So there's lots to, lots to, it's in fact a fire hose of information. And they were really great. They opened up the vaults, the uh, photo, photo archives. In some cases, they had to, you know, things weren't available, like they weren't uh, digitally available to, for print, they had to actually go back to get screen grabs of specific things that I requested. About 80% of what you see in the book uh, in terms of visuals are images that I requested. I basically look, looking through getting t- specific timestamps for, for screenshots that never existed before it turned out. We don't want to ignore the uh, many, many illustrations of the real universe. Oh, and, and definitely, and that's that's a big part of the picture too, because you know we have the the these beloved Star Trek uh, episodes and scenes, and they're juxtaposed with the real Hubble images, uh, different uh, NASA missions, European missions that are out there. We're so lucky; we have such beautiful, exquisite, hyper realistic visions, practically, of the universe available that we wanted to make sure that. The reader really can see the differences and the similarities between Star Trek universe and the real universe. And, and then follow it up with maps of the night sky as well. Yeah, you've got star charts in, in the back for uh, anybody who wants to keep those handy along with uh, images of some of the things that people might observe in the night sky, even naked eye observations. You're not the first, of course, to, to use Star Trek as a jumping off point to introduce real science uh, to, to lay people. Have you read Lawrence uh, Krauss's uh, The Science of Star Trek, that, that bestseller from years ago? Of course, of course, and and uh, you know the the physics of Star Trek that he wrote is is uh, is a real foundation of showing what the similarities are between a lot of the overall science and and the technology as well uh, that exists in in Star Trek. But I think what may set my take here is that I'm really focusing on the astronomy, you know, as much as possible, and the stargazing component. That has never been done before, the stargazing aspect, and what that is really where my passion lies. And it, you know, it's the it's the backbone to the book of being able to connect not just overall science, not just talking about like phasers and warp speed and you know teleportation. And that's been done many times over, but really going into the astronomical canvas, that beautiful uh, space cosmic canvas that adventures play out on and delving into that and then making that connection for the reader that you know what it's not just something in a book and pictures from Hubble it's something that you can do 
by just stepping out your front doorstep and looking up. Absolutely. And I, it shows you how long it's been since I've read uh, Krauss's book that I called it, The Science of Star Trek. You know, in, in some email to you, I, I said and I stand by, this would make a pretty good intro to astronomy textbook with only, you know, a couple of uh, quizzes maybe added at the end of chapters, things like that. It's a good introduction. I mean, you don't have to be a Trek fan, but I, I suppose that helps. The the appeal of this, I mean, I, I, the book's been out now only for a couple of months, and but I've been fortunate enough to talk with people uh, at conventions at different places where I've given talks and stuff. And what I'm getting uh, really interesting is what I, this is my, this is what I really was hoping to get out of the book is getting like parents who, for instance, do like Star Trek, but are also science geeks, getting their kids involved in, 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 uh, in science and into, maybe, you know, into Star Trek as well. And so that, uh, you know, is a parent child kind of activity that they can do together is using this book sitting on the sofa, watching that episode, learning about science, and then doing an activity together by going outside and doing some stargazing, which is a really great bonding type of activity, I think, for, a, for families to do. And then on top of that, we also have a different demographic, having teachers out there who've come to me and says, this is something they're really considering uh, in their courses. Like I've had college professors who are doing introduction to astronomy to non-science students getting them excited or engaged about science, but using Star Trek as a hook. This book will allow that, I think, to really uh, at least, you know, plant the seeds for that to, uh, in, in their course. That's the Night Sky Guy, Andrew Fasekis. We'll talk more about his new book that melds Star Trek and astronomy after a break. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm Robert Picardo, Planetary Society board member and now the host of the Society's Planetary Post video newsletter. There's a new edition every month. We've already gone behind the scenes at JPL, partied at Yuri's Night, and visited with CEO Bill Nye. We've also got the month's top headlines from around the solar system. You can sign up at planetary.org forward slash connect. When you do, you'll be among the first to see each new show. I hope you'll join us. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Whitney. We've been building a youth education program here at the Planetary Society. We want to get space science in all classrooms to engage young people around the world in science learning. But Kate, are you a science teacher? No. Are you? Nope. We're going to need help. We want to involve teachers and education experts from the beginning to make sure that what we produce is useful in your classroom. As a first step, we're building the STEAM team. That's science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. So teachers, to learn more about how you can help guide this effort, check out planetary.org slash STEAM team. That's planetary.org slash STEAM team. And help us spread the word. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're in the midst of talking with Andrew Fasekis about two of my favorite topics, Star Trek and astronomy. Andrew has mind-melded the two in his new book from National Geographic, titled Star Trek, The Official Guide to Our Universe, The True Science Behind the Starship Voyages. There's no shortage of books that introduce the night sky, but this is the first that approaches the topic aboard the Starship Enterprise. Anybody who takes on writing about the universe uh, has to come to grips with the fact that by the time the book appears... We're going to have new knowledge. And, and that came home to me. Uh, I was going through the book, and I saw where you were talking about we've charted something like 300 million stars in the sky. And you mention 
the Gaia mission, which, of course, just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about it last week on this show, uh, had its big release of data and has just vastly multiplied the number of stars that we're getting to know in our own galaxy. I mean, that, you knew that was uh, going to happen when you wrote the book, right? It, you know, that's <laughs> right. It, in some respects, the book is old already because it deals with 50 years of Star Trek, right? I mean, it's... it's uh, uh, to your point. Some, the Trek aspect, the history of Trek, uh, is going to be there, and that won't change. But yes, the astronomical side of things, are, it's such a fast-paced world we live in now with all the missions out there and the discoveries on a week-to-week basis. Yes, like the Gaia thing, amazing. Four, what, I, I read that it was like 400 million stars in that 1.1 billion survey has never even been seen by human eyes before. Mm. So. That is an impressive number, that right away. And then, of course, things like uh, the planets, exoplanets, the numbers and what's the newest one, like the very exciting Proxima B uh, yes, yeah. just a few weeks ago. You know, I wish that could have been put in there. You know, well, you, you could put that in Planet Nine in the second edition of the book. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, are, what are your favorite sky features? Oh, in terms of the real night sky... Um, I love obviously the planets and particularly like the Saturn never, never fails, right? As a science educator, an astronomy educator, I, I call it the wow planet because that's the first reaction I get from people. And I do the same thing. It's just like, wow, is this really in front of me in the eyepiece? I can't believe it, what I'm seeing. And then in terms of deep sky targets, like things that are beyond the solar system, uh, star clusters, particularly globular star clusters, are just absolutely, if people are not familiar with, with what they are, you can think of it as sort of if you had a, a, a tablecloth, a black velvet tablecloth, and you're looking down on it, and then you spill a pile of sugar on, on top, and you look at that pile of sugar, crystal, crystalline sugar, that's what it kind of looks like looking into the eyepiece at it. It's like literally hundreds of thousands of stars in a ball shape that stretches maybe a hundred light years across and it's tens of thousands of light years away. Uh, it's a city of stars that you're actually looking at in the eyepiece. And, it, and through an, a backyard telescope under dark skies, it is one of the most amazing things in nature that you can behold. I couldn't agree more. In fact, one of the most gorgeous uh, illustrations in the book is a, a two-page spread of, uh, of a particular cluster, Omega Centauri. Yeah, I mean, you know, the globular star clusters are, are one of those um, staples of backyard sky watchers. If you have a, a backyard telescope, even a more modest telescope, the way I divided the book is based on uh, traditional astronomical types of objects. And we went into the, the, the globular clusters and looking at that. I knew right away, I mean, you know, you, you've got such amazing capabilities from like the Hubble Space Telescope and its cousins. Uh, we can actually go right into the center of the cluster. And you can see that in the Omega Globular Cluster. It's, it's a, a staple for those in the Southern Hemisphere uh, in the Centaurus constellation. And it's 
considered one of the best deep sky targets for an amateur to look at. You are in that image, you're actually seeing it at the heart of the cluster, which to a backyard astronomer, it just looks like they're packed, right? The stars yeah. are touching each other, it looks like, which of course they're not. You can see in that spread that they're just, it looks like uh, Christmas light bulbs spread out all, <laughs> all across the sky. It is absolutely, as I said, gorgeous. Uh, and I'm glad that you're into the planetary stuff too. You know, we just had... Uh, our most frequent guest, Linda Spilker, the uh, principal scientist for the Cassini mission on the show. The book is not out of date yet. You've got some beautiful images from the Rosetta mission of that comet. Yeah, I mean, definitely comets were an important part in Star Trek, too. I mean, there was a great, uh, great scenes of comets, particularly in the Enterprise series. And that's where I've connected the the fictional universe with the real universe where in this particular episode they're uh actually landing on a comet and building a snowman of all things <laughs> sort of really fantastical stuff and that's where you go off on on a tangent a little bit maybe into the sci-fi realm truly uh, more than reality but comets now are such at the forefront in in science in space exploration right i mean we're seeing these amazing images brought back by the rosetta mission and the Philae lander of course that is a monumental i i think a milestone in our planet in our solar system exploration that had to i had to showcase to people that you know people think of comets as with their, you know, with their beautiful romantic tails spread out across the sky, but in fact, this is what it look. They look like worlds unto their own when we have a ringside seat to them. You've uh, got some biology in here as well, uh, exobiology, which of course is still a field without any subjects to study. But uh, but you do address the this burgeoning field, and you know maybe that'll be in the second edition too. Who knows? We may not be far from finding life elsewhere. I had to include alien life in our universe because simply because it takes such a large part in the Star Trek universe. I mean, it's 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 the basis of all the adventures and action that goes on is the aliens that we meet. And of course, in reality, we're the only example of alien li- of of life that we know it is actually on on our own planet. The search is is as hot as ever. And I think this really engages people, too, and the connection between Star Trek and reality. Our search is pointing us to the fact that life can find uh, a niche in very extreme habitats, mm. much more extreme conditions than we ever thought possible, which is expanding the possibility that we will find life. And I personally, from all the research that I've done as a journalist, tells me that it's, not po- uh, it's, not, it's more than just possible. It's, I think it's probable that we'll find some form of life, maybe microbial life, and that's all. But uh, who knows? Science is showing us that life may be much more common than we ever thought before. I sure hope you're right about that. Uh, Speaking of hot life, you got a nice contribution up front from James Tiberius Kirk himself. Ah, yes, the cosmic swashbuckler. Yes. Uh, (laughs) You know, I think of him as like an Errol Flynn type of character. I had to have him in, in there. I had to, Matt, because uh, I wanted him to set the scene. He's been uh, such an iconic figure for all the fan, millions of fans, and he's gone on to do so many other things. And, you know, he still likes science. He's very involved in science. He's, he does science documentaries. He's uh, written science fiction himself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wanted him to be involved and set the scene. And sure enough, I mean, 
I was lucky to get, and I, and I told fo- my editors at National Geographic, do whatever it takes to get this man. I said, <laughs> uh, it, 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 just tell him that I'm a fellow Montrealer. I tell him, I said, we went to the same university, anything, just try. Sure enough, it worked. I, and uh, he's been so nice. I was lucky enough to, to chat with him, meet him personally, finally, a couple of weeks ago at Mission New York at the big uh, Star Trek uh, convention in New York City. And uh, I spent a few moments with him and thanked him personally and met my, my family as well. And what a kick. You know, it sort of puts a period at the end of my Star Trek adventure, having that moment with him. Oh, the Star Trek adventure never ends. Come on, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> let me finish uh, with some obligatory Trekkie questions. Uh, since since we've brought up uh, James T., uh, Kirk versus Picard. Oh, my gosh. That's a, you know what? I like both. It depends on what mood I'm in. Apples uh, and oranges. Yeah, it is apples and oranges. You know, uh, Picard is a much more down-to-earth, philosophical, almost Shakespearean type of individual. And then you have Kirk, who's a real, like I said, a swashbuckler. He loves the adventure. You know, he's a woman's man. You know, and it's like he's bigger than life to me. So Kirk always is number one in my books. Okay. Favorite series? I, I really like the original series for the campiness that we that it has, and and again the the wonderful storylines that that abound through it. I really like Voyager too. Voyager speaks in that the fact that this this they're exploring the Delta Quadrant where you know no humans have explored. We haven't reached there yet, and they're stuck there, and they're making their way back. Love that whole concept. And you got some good mileage out of talking about how. Uh... The galaxy has been divided up into these quadrants. It was a good intro uh, for you talking about the structure of our and other galaxies. Yeah, and you know what? It kind of makes sense. It, 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 a lot of the stuff that they do in Star Trek in terms of the astronomical uh, kind of categorizations make sense. You know, obviously they've done... They've gone more uh, because it takes place two, three hundred years in the future. So they'll 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 have much more advanced uh, reconnaissance of and uh, of of the Milky Way galaxy. But a lot of the basic structure is there, and it, it wasn't hard to go back and forth between the two universes. Favorite episode? Mm, let me see now. The favorite episode. Uh, you know, Trouble with Tribbles. I like it's comedic. That one is just purely for the comedic value. I love what they did with that. But in terms of the storyline, um, I like all our yesteryears. I like that one in the original series where uh, Spock and uh, Kirk go down to a planet and, and Spock has a romantic encounter, which is very unusual. You've got a nice still photo of that in the book of uh, uh, <laughs> Spock falling in love with this woman in an irretrievable past. Yes, I love that. And they have, of course, uh, the, the world is in danger where they are because the, it, uh, the, its home star will go supernova. So that whole thing. And if you look at the remastered version of it, the graphics are amazing of how they remaster with modern uh, computer technology. And the other episode that I have to mention is probably one of my uh, all-time favorites is uh, The City on the Edge of Forever uh, with uh, guest star uh, Joan Collins as Edith Keeler. And they tra- it has that time and space travel element, which is um, I love for for uh, any science fiction adventure. And then they throw in a great, rom- a tragic, romantic storyline 
And and in that episode, by the way, Kirk, you know, he's walking on a with a romantic walk with with Joan Collins, Edith Keeler, and and he points up to the sky and points out the Orion constellation and the belt of Orion. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And I remember that as a child. That's funny enough. Doing the project, I kind of remember that it was a seed that obviously planted in my head. That remembering that episode, it's still just. It's, uh, it's like comfort food for me to be able to look at these kind of episodes. You have so much company in choosing that uh, City on the Edge of uh, Tomorrow. Uh, certainly one of my all-time favorites and, and a beautiful, beautiful story written by Harlan Ellison, the great science fiction writer. But, of course, then he sort of uh, removed his name because he didn't like what they did with it. Too bad because it was a, a terrific uh, bit of not necessarily the best science to be found in Star Trek, but uh, certainly a terrific story. And it's... It's that connection between the drama and exploring the universe that uh, maybe has made Star Trek such fertile ground for folks like you uh, in using it to bring us to real science. Yeah, exactly. You know, like you mentioned, Matt, in that particular episode, maybe the science wasn't so right. But I don't know why, but there was that connection that it made with me, that idea of where Kirk looked up and actually pointed out a star in the belt of Orion. I don't know, I was looking up that there are people there, there's a, there's a planet around that, one of those stars, and captured my imagination. And that's what Star Trek did for an entire generation, is capture that imagination and became a seed for inventors, astronauts, scientists around the world, making a difference in the world, a positive difference. Andrew, I think a lot more people will uh, get an opportunity to have that experience, partly through your uh, new book, which, uh, again, I highly recommend. It is a beautiful book, Star Trek, The Official Guide to Our Universe from National Geographic. Thank you for uh, taking a few minutes to talk with us about, oh, the Trek universe and uh, the real one, which holds just as much, if not much more, wonder. Oh, thank you so much, Matt, for the opportunity, and live long and prosper. And LLAP to you as well. Andrew Fasekas is the starstruck columnist on NationalGeographic.com. He's also a regular contributor to CBC Radio Canada. He writes and watches the skies in Montreal. But I hear you're going to be out, uh, out our way in the Los Angeles area pretty soon. What's going on? Yes, uh, we have. I'm actually part. Of, very excited to be part of the uh, new Mars series television series that National Geographic is putting together. We uh, and I'm hosting a companion traveling lecture series called Mankind to Mars that National Geographic is putting together, and I'll be acting as a host and having a discussion uh, with NASA scientists uh, who are a part of real life Mars missions. And we'll be talking about all the possi- exciting possibilities of humans exploring Mars firsthand. So that'll be really exciting. We'll be a traveling show throughout the United States. We are looking forward to that premiere, and uh, we'll be covering it here on Planetary Radio and elsewhere at planetary.org as well. And uh, when you come to town, I hope you can make it out our way to uh, Planetary Society headquarters in Pasadena. I hear that you were a member early on, and you were even up for a job at our place. Ah, that's right. Going way back in the early 90s. I, I was actually a member from uh, 1980, early 1980s and loved looking at all those images, this artwork and the pictures of the planets and stuff. And then in the early 90s, I was just out of school and looking for a, for a job. And uh, Louis Friedman actually interviewed me for an a education coordinator position. I didn't get it at the time. I was a real green, green kid at the time, but he was so nice. He gave me a lot of tips and advice of of uh, be to be becoming an educator, uh, focusing on space, and I just got a big kick out of actually being considered and 
<laughs> so it was a lot of fun. I am going to make sure that Lou hears about that. He listens to the show, so he'll probably discover it anyway. And Andrew, while I'm sorry we didn't get to be colleagues at the Society, you seem to have done okay for yourself. Ah, oh, thank you. I'm, I, it's I'm just keeping that passion going for the wonders of the universe. That's it. You bet. That's what we're all about. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you. Another guy who shares his uh, passion for the universe with us on a weekly basis, that's uh, Bruce Betts. He's coming up in this week's What's Up segment right now. Time once again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Did I say planetary or just plantary? Anyway, Planetary Radio with Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society. Welcome back. Today we're talking about philodendrons. <laughs> Wait, this is plant radio or oh, planetary radio? Yeah, yeah. We're going to record plant radio in a few minutes uh, with our oh, pseudonyms. That would be awesome. <laughs> I would know almost nothing. Botany rules. What's up in the night sky? Forget about those plants. <laughs> Planetary science rules. Plant science drools. <laughs> All right, in the in the sky, we'll start in the pre-dawn sky. We've got uh, Jupiter is now in the in the morning sky and getting higher and higher, low in the east. If you've got a really clear view to the east and you look before dawn uh, during this this week, the week of the tenth, uh, you may see it near Mercury. Mercury will continue to drop lower, and the much brighter Jupiter will get higher. Evening sky, Venus getting higher uh, shortly after sunset as the weeks go along. Super bright, low in the west. Those are your best shots. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1968 that Apollo 7 launched. It was the first Apollo mission to carry humans into space. Just an orbital mission, right? Earth orbit. Yes, yes. Random space back. That reminds me of something, something TV-ish, but I can't place it. If I think of it before we're done, I'll, I'll tell you. So Saturn's moons and their naming, 24 of Saturn's moons are, are regular, orbiting in a normal kind of way, and uh, traditionally named after Titans or other figures associated with the mythological Saturn. The remaining 38 are all small, irregular, and uh, classified by orbital characteristics into Inuit, Norse, and Gaelic groups in terms of their naming. Thanks. We move on to the trivia contest. We asked you, what is the surface gravity on Jupiter's moon Europa given in Gs, where one G is the surface gravity at Earth's surface? How'd we do, Matt? Outstanding number of uh, entries, almost all of them correct. Wish we could uh, reward all of you, but... I think it's only going to be Tom Van Scotter, a longtime listener, but uh, first-time winner, as far as I could tell, in Shorewood, Illinois. He said that the gravity on Europa is about uh, 0.134 G. That is correct. 13% of Earth's surface gravity. Congrats, Tom. He also said uh, that the high jump records, about 2.5 meters on Earth, would be over 18 meters on Europa, assuming, of course, a low-mass spacesuit is available. Uh, Tom, you're going to get that uh, Planetary Radio t-shirt. We just got a new batch in, so uh, we even have women for the first time. Women's sizes. We've never done that before because we couldn't, right? and now apparently we can. I, I don't know why. Planetary <laughs> Society rubber asteroid, or should I say rubber asteroid, both the men's and women's, 
and it's it's unisex, and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account, international non-profit network of telescopes operated from our uh, friends down uh, down under. That's what Tom's getting. We heard from Jordan Tickton, Westlake, California. He said that 0.134G on Europa, it's a little over one-third of Mars's surface gravity, which itself is a little over one-third of Earth's. Norman Kassoon gave us a bunch of examples of gravity on, on different bodies. The one I liked the most was the one on uh, churyumov gerasimenko Rosetta's comet, 0.000017G. <laughs> I don't know. Escape velocity, what? A good jog? I'm pretty sure I could throw you off. <laughs> Mel Powell said that if Alan Shepard had uh, hit his famous golf shot on Europa, it would have gone about 23% farther, barring, says Mel, an obstacle on Europa, such as, dare I say it, a water hazard. <laughs> ah, kind of an icy hazard. Richard Tolson in Hastings, Nebraska, revealed something I didn't know about you. He says if the weight on Bruce's UFC fighter stats is still correct at 185 pounds... He would weigh about 25 pounds, which would give new meaning to the lightest weight class of atom weight. Uh, how, how have I missed your matches? This is a history I don't usually uh, discuss in this forum. I try to keep two separate personalities. Dave Fairchild will close it out this time. He sent us another little poem. Europa's gravity is weak, 0.134 of Earth. It used to be much stronger until Britain pulled its birth. Oh, wait, wrong Europa. little Brexit uh, humor there. All right, we're done with that stuff. All right, next question. What moon in the solar system has the longest orbital period around its parent planet? So obviously, referring to moons we've actually discovered, what moon in the solar system has the longest orbital period around its parent planet? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have this time until the 18th of October. That would be Tuesday the 18th at 8 a.m. Pacific time, to get us the answer, still a rubber asteroid, Planetary Society rubber asteroid, a 200-point itelescope.net account, but we have a copy of Star Trek, the official guide to our universe, the true science behind the Starship voyages. In other words, the book from National Geographic that we were just talking with with Andrew Fasekas about, with a forward by... uh, the Shat himself, William Shatner. It's a beautiful book, and uh, we're going to include that in the prize package this time around. So uh, get those entries in, and we're done. All right, everybody, go out there. Look up the night sky and think about planetary radio in the octagon. One night only. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. That's our heavyweight. He's Bruce Betts, the director of science and technology for the Planetary Society, who joins us here in the octagon every week for What's Up. Did you just call me fat? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its federated members. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.